while Pastor Zach and uh, other pastors are vacationing or at uh, Camp Wapo, it's a delight for me to step into the void and to be with you both last weekend as well as this weekend. Another way of saying it is, you can't get rid of me. <laughs> Before we look at the message on the, the parable of the ten maidens, I'd like to take a few minutes right here, if I can, to respond to two questions that repeatedly have been asked of me as I've come to the time of no longer being with you. And that is, uh, Pastor Dave, what are you going to do now? And secondly, what is this Virtues Campus that you mention every once in a while? As many, many of you know, during the nine months I was your interim pastor, I was wearing two hats, the hat of the interim and the hat of president of the Virtues Campus. And I really want to let you know how much I enjoyed the nine months of being your interim pastor. I look back, and I will always look back with real fondness and with so many good memories at that time with you. Now I continue to wear, having taken off the interim hat, I continue to wear the hat of the president of the Virtues Campus, and so I'm re-engaging more time and energy under that hat as I work with college-age students. And I want to take this opportunity also to thank you, the congregation, the leadership of the congregation, specifically for two things. The Virtues Campus existed this last year here at Calvary, and it will continue to exist. Calvary will be housing the Virtues Campus for this coming year, and we're very, very grateful for that. Um, Calvary is a great location in the western suburbs. It is an excellent facility and a bustling, vibrant congregation that our students come to Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. It's just a perfect place, and so thank you for allowing the campus to continue here. Second thing I want to thank you for is uh, the congregation is allowing me to occupy office space during this coming year on the fourth floor. So I will continue to office out of Calvary. So I'll be coming here Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, as I have been this last year. And uh, um, that will not change for me as I continue to office here at Calvary Monday through Friday. Then, so many of you have asked, well, what is this Virtues Campus? I hear about it, I don't know anything about it, what is it? Well, allow me just to briefly tell you what it is. The Virtues Campus is a Christian community college. If that sounds new and different, that's because it is. It's the only one of its kind, the only one in the United States. Our vision is a broad vision. We want to multiply these campuses in churches of all denominations throughout the whole United States as a way of discipling the next generation in God's truth. It's Christian in that we are offering an education built on the truth of biblical Christianity. It's community. It's a place where our students can belong, a place for students to do life together, both inside and outside the classroom. And it's college. We are in partnership with a fully regionally accredited university, which gives our students their, their academic degrees. So whether you're looking for a two-year academic degree planning an intentional gap year, or just aren't sure what the next step is. The Virtues Campus provides a variety of options for young people to discover God's unique design upon their lives and what that means for possible career paths into the future. According to a Gallup study, 70% of workers in America are not engaged in their work. A significant percentage of those say if they had it all to do over again, they would choose a different major or a different career. 
we don't want the young people of our churches to be a part of that group. So at the Virtues Campus, we help students discover their strengths, their gifts, God's design for their life, what that means for possible career paths, helping them on a, an educational path to get there. All the while, they're earning an Associate of Arts or Associate of Science degree. We're not a Bible school. We're not a seminary. We want to put truth back into public education in America. Can you have a part in any way of what's happening here at Calvary through the Virtues Campus? You sure can. You can let other people know about who we are. Uh, we are finding that there is, we are a good fit for at least three types of students. And we have put a name to each of those students. I want to briefly describe those students to you. Maybe as I'm describing those students, you will think of somebody that fits that description. First of all, there's Connor. We call him dazed and confused Connor. He feels pressure to go to college, but he has no life or career goals. In other words, he has no clue what he wants to do after, college, after high school. He's quite sure he doesn't want to go to college to figure it out because he knows he will just pile on more and more debt. That doesn't something he's interested in. He needs a place to figure it out, a place that's non-judgmental, a place where he doesn't feel pressured. And he's even open to helping other people helping him figure out who he is and, and where he should go. I think we're a perfect fit for, for Connor. Secondly, there's Darcy. We call her directed but destitute. Darcy, she wants to go to a four-year Christian school, but it's just too expensive for her, for her family. And she doesn't want to take out all kinds of loans, end up with a huge mountain of college debt, which she will have to pay off for the next decade. So she needs a stepping stone to that four-year university, a stepping stone where she can take her generals, earn credits, and then can transfer those credits to the four-year university after the two years with us. She doesn't want to be left behind academically. So she's willing to stay at home, work part-time, and go to a Christian community college. She is not afraid of vigorous, rigorous academic work, which the Virtues Campus is. She wants an affordable school with a priceless curriculum. We are a good fit for the Darcy's out there. And then thirdly, there's Samantha. We call her stepping stone Samantha, uh, she has a general direction in life, but she needs clarity as to what she wants to do and where she wants to go. And so in that direction, she needs greater clarity, which we at the Virtues Campus can provide. As she moves in that direction, she can gain inexpensive college credit within a Christian environment, which for her is a better option than just a regular community college. And while the, she's with us those two years, she can gain real-life experience as she can work part-time, as she does job shadowing, and as she does service projects in the community. So do you know a Connor or a Darcy or a Samantha? If someone came to mind, would you connect us with them or them with us? That would be great. Maybe a son or a daughter. Maybe a grandson. Maybe a granddaughter. A friend. Maybe a friend's son who started college two years ago but dropped out and still living in the basement. Our students are finding their time with us to be a life-changing experience. If someone comes to mind, would you just help us get connected with them? We have some rack cards. They're in the information desk in the Welcome Center. Take one or two or three and hand them to somebody 
that would be a great way to help. We also have a website and telephone number if anyone would get in contact with us. Thank you so much. Well, it's happened to me on three different occasions, and I can remember specifically where it happened each time. The first time was downstate Illinois on Interstate 55. Mona and our four children were returning from visiting friends in southern Illinois. The second time was much closer to home. It was on McDonough Street, right next to the golf course in Joliet, Illinois. It was just Mona and I at that time. The third time was a time when I had three members of the congregation I served initially with me. We were going around Indianapolis on our way to a seminar in Cincinnati. I remember those three times very well when I ran out of gas. Especially embarrassing with three members of your congregation with you in the car. And I remember the long walk that ensued on one of those three occasions. But gas was purchased and we replenished the tank and we went down not too much worse for the wear except a little bit hurt pride. The consequences of our letting our spiritual tank run dry, however, can be fatal. In fact, Jesus was so concerned about that that he told a parable to warn us, to instruct us, and to encourage us. It was the last week of Jesus' life. He had returned to Jerusalem a couple days before what we now know as Palm Sunday. So his time on earth is limited now. By noon on Friday, he'd be dying on a cross outside the city. But before he did, he had some things he wanted his disciples and us to remember. And so he told a parable. I can imagine Jesus telling this parable in a courtyard. Maybe the courtyard of a, of a wealthy friend, maybe in a home outside of Jerusalem. Jesus loved using familiar places and familiar settings as teaching examples. There had been a wedding the night before. And Jesus bends down and picks up one of the little oil lamps. And holding that, he tells a parable of ten young maidens at a marriage festival. Earlier in the day, Jesus and his disciples had been on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city of Jerusalem from the north. Then he had told his disciples that there would be certain signs which would accompany the end times. There would be wars and rumors of wars. Wickedness would increase on the earth. Followers of Jesus would turn away from following him. In fact, he said, nobody knows when the end is coming. The angels of heaven don't know. Even I, the Son of God, don't know. The date is known only by the Heavenly Father. So standing there in the courtyard, he saw the necessity to prepare his people, his disciples, for these end times. He told a simple story of a wedding feast. Now, a Jewish wedding lasted for seven days. It was a big event. Much, much different than our weddings. The ceremony is usually over in less than an hour. The guests then go to a banquet hall where they have a meal, have a dance. Then the guests go home, and the young couple goes off on their honeymoon. 
Not so in Palestine. The couple honeymooned at home. It all began with a great reception, usually taking place in the home of the bride's family. That was followed by a feast, which in turn was followed by the actual ceremony. And the highlight of the entire wedding festivities was the coming of the bridegroom. He could come at any time. Again, how different it is today. Who's the highlight? Who's the focus on in our modern weddings? Well, the bride. Everybody is turning around to get a first glimpse of the bride coming down the aisle. What kind of a dress will she be wearing? How will she wear her hair? The groom, he's just up front. Nobody's looking. He's, everybody's focused on the bride. Not so in Palestine. The highlight of the wedding festivities in Palestine was the coming of the bridegroom. When would he show up? In fact, they used to kind of play a game, guessing when he would come. In Jesus' story, it was after dark when word came that the bridegroom was coming. So ten of the bridesmaids got up and went out to meet him, carrying their little oil lamps to light the way on the road for him to come into the courtyard. But the groom was delayed for some reason. And so the young women sat by the side of the road and they waited and they waited and they waited and they fell asleep. Suddenly at midnight, the cry went out that he is coming and they woke up. They took their lamps, small little pottery bowls that contained oil with a wick hanging over the edge. This time, five of the bridesmaids took extra oil with them. And so they trimmed their lamps and they filled their little lamps with oil. The other five brought no reserves with them. Give us some oil, they said to the others. We don't have any. No, 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 no. It may not be enough for us if we give some to you. Instead, go and buy some from those who would sell you oil. It's not that the five had no oil. Rather, it's just that they did not bring extra reserves with them. So there's a problem. Where do you find a merchant to buy oil from at midnight? Well, they rushed off to find some oil. While they were gone, the bridegroom came, went into the house, closed the gate behind him. Therefore, he said, keep watch. We do not know the day or the hour. Five were welcomed in. Five remained outside. I had read this story of Jesus year after year after year. And I'd always thought that it was talking about Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers. The five foolish were those members of, who were not a part of the kingdom of God. The five wise to those who were members of the kingdom of God. I no longer think that's what Jesus is teaching us in this parable. Jesus is not talking about five virgins and five prostitutes. All are a part of the party. But some of them were wise and some of them were foolish. I think this is a lesson for believers. Everyone had oil at the start of the evening. All their lamps were lit in the early part of the evening. I think Jesus is saying something like this to us. It's not enough to just become a Christian. 
start out well. What you need to be doing as though the Christian life will just kind of go on automatically after that point. There is the need for building up spiritual reserves. This is a question that each of us is faced with as we face the parable is this. Do I have spiritual reserves? What will happen when the crisis comes? Will I stand or will I fall? The interesting thing about crises is they always come unplanned. These maidens had waited and waited and waited, and suddenly at midnight, the bridegroom came. The party was to start at 7. How do you handle it when the party is scheduled to begin at 7, but the bridegroom shows up five hours later? Some of us are dreamers. Now, if you're a dreamer, don't apologize. I happen to think... We need dreamers. But I also know my tendency, and that is I dream, and I plan, and I strategize, and I strategize some more, and then I go to God and ask Him to bless my plans. I figure out the goals, the objectives, a, an elaborate timeline. When I have it all figured out, I go to God and say, God, would you put your corporate stamp of approval of the kingdom of God on this? How preposterous. That's not God's way. God's way is not for me to reveal my plans to God, asking him to bless them. God's way is that he reveals his plans to us, and then we are obedient. See, God has a way of saying, I think I'll arrive in my time, not yours. It may be midnight before I show up. You just sort of sit around and cool your jets. Let your lamp burn out. I'll show up whenever I jolly well please. Besides, I want to see how you react. I want to find out if you've had enough sense to bring some extra oil. See, God's never in a hurry. The only time in all of Scripture where God is pictured as being in a hurry is in the parable of the prodigal son. There Jesus pictures the Father as rushing, running down the road to embrace his wayward son who's coming back from the pigsty. Running to embrace him with grace and forgiveness, the one who's returning from the distant country. It's the only time in all of Scripture where God is pictured as being in a hurry. God doesn't wear a watch. Patience is one of the great fruits of the Holy Spirit. Impatience comes from the pit of hell, not from God. And every one of us struggles with this. Wives become impatient because their husbands are so slow. Fathers become impatient with their children and sometimes abuse them. Prisoners become impatient with their lawyers, with the court, with the judicial system. Mature Christians become impatient with immature Christians. Why don't they pray more? Why don't they read their scriptures more? Why don't they take their spiritual life more seriously? The party starts at 7. God may not show up till midnight. So we wind up sitting outside on the steps. Our bottom ends get sore sitting on the stone. Our lamp goes out 
You get sleepy. There are bugs and mosquitoes biting. A carriage comes by and splashes with the dirty water. I'm in a bad mood. The whole world comes down on me. Patience. God wanted us, Jesus wanted us to know that God is never in a hurry. And we'd better be prepared to get on God's timetable. That's the need for reserves. Every one of us can expect to meet numerous crises during an average lifetime. The death of a parent, the loss of a child, the loss of a job, a divorce, the death of a spouse, financial hard times, the loss of purpose and meaning, terminal illness, a midlife crisis, being rejected by a friend, the breaking of trust, loneliness. The question is not if, but when the crisis comes, will we have built up reserves? Will I have lived a laissez-faire, cavalier sort of life? Or will I have been intentional about building up those spiritual reserves for the time of crisis? It will make all the difference in the world. It made all the difference in the world for a German theologian pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I love books. I'm going to recommend a, a book to you by Eric Metaxas titled Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. It's, it's a good read. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor, a leader of the Confessing Church in Germany, which stood against the German Christians who had compromised with Hitler and with the Third Reich. He became a part of the resistance, trying to rid the world of Hitler during World War II. At first, Bonhoeffer thought he would live a life in academia, being a professor. But he always felt drawn to a life and work of a pastor. He was deeply grieved by the Lutheran Church in Germany's accommodation to the Third Reich and to Hitler. And he deeply sensed God's call to a life of discipleship where Jesus is Lord and man is not Lord. Jesus was Lord of all. And loyalty to Jesus meant, meant being lived out in the arena also of a Christian's obligation to the state and to the governing authorities. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew the cost of discipleship. He knew that resisting a madman like Hitler was very dangerous. But Christian discipleship required it. He knew that it might cost him his life one day. And he often wondered if he would have the courage and the strength to face that. That life of discipleship meant many things for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It meant being a regular worshiper every week with God's people. It meant partaking of Holy Communion whenever it was offered. He believed the Christian life needed to be lived out, and so he modeled the living of the Christian life before his students. He wanted everyone to wake up and stop playing church. He diligently taught Luther's small catechism to his students, his confirmation students. He developed a, a deep prayer life. The singing of hymns became a normal part of his life. He saw the need for Christian community to be supported by others. 
and he meditated on the scriptures, on the daily texts. Would that life of discipleship sustain him when the crises came? And the crises did come. In April, early April of 1945, two weeks before the Allies liberated Germany, he was condemned to the gallows for his part in the resistance. The camp doctor at Flossenburg told us about an account of his last moments. He said, Bonhoeffer knelt on the floor in fervent prayer to God. He was most deeply moved how this lovable man prayed, so devout in his prayers, so confident that God was hearing them. At the place of execution, he again paused and said a short prayer and then climbed the steps up the gallows, brave and composed. The doctor at Flossenburg said in the almost 50 years that he was there, he had hardly ever seen a man so entirely submitted to the will of God. Bonhoeffer had built up spiritual reserves for the moment of crisis, and that allowed him to stand with courage and bravery when it came. Our spiritual reserves, too, are built up as we allow the Holy Spirit to build up those reserves within us during our times of prayer and solitude with Him. As we read and study God's Word and let it dwell in us richly, as we worship regularly with God's people, as we allow Christ to nurture us in His sacraments, as we put our faith into action every day. Cut yourself off from those spiritual resources and you will become spiritually dry pretty quickly. Thinking back on my own ministry, I can think of times when which were especially uh, difficult in seasons of hardship and, and high intensity. I remember one such season when we were moving from one campus to two campuses. We were moving the entire staff into a different leadership style, which was taxing and challenging and, and demanding both physically as well as emotionally. When I heard myself say one day, I have nothing left to give, I saw the blinking light on the dashboard telling me that my emotional and spiritual tank was on empty. I'm grateful that some others in the congregation also saw that, and they allowed me some extra time away from the congregation, time to get away and to replenish that tank that had run dry. And I came back with a new resolve to live a better balanced life as well as a better self-care. If we are so busy doing even good things and don't take the time to keep or to replenish our spiritual tanks, when the crisis comes, we will have nothing to draw on. We'll be dry and be easily toppled over. So Jesus is calling us to be prepared. You'd better bring along some extra oil, he says. I may show up at 7.30. I may not get there till midnight. But I'm not primarily interested in schedules or projects. I'm interested in you. What you become while you wait is more important than what you achieve. I made you human beings, not human doings. Now, Jesus tells us this story to illustrate his return and how mandatory it is for us to have spiritual reserves as we come towards the end. He says, as we come towards the end of time, 
crises is going to increase. Wars, wickedness, followers are going to turn against me. Jesus could come at any time. He could come this afternoon. It's imperative that we be carrying extra oil with us. It's not enough to sing hallelujah all the time. A lot of people did that on Palm Sunday as they welcomed Jesus in Jerusalem with palm branches and singing and praising. But when the crises came a few days later, they were nowhere to be found. Their lamps had run dry. They were all charisma and no character. The wise person understands that he and she needs to stay in the word under the power of the Holy Spirit. So when the shaking comes, there will be something left in the bottom of our lamps. This is a strong word of warning, and it is a strong word of encouragement. Not to be sidetracked, not to become lazy as we wait, but rather always be storing up those spiritual reserves, keeping them fresh. Here are two Christians faced with the death of a loved one. One breaks down and falls apart. The other grows stronger through the experience. What's the difference? One has spiritual reserves. Two Christians facing tribulation. The first becomes afraid and turns away from following Christ. The second faithfully perseveres through the difficult time. What's the difference? Well, one was wise because they had prepared for that time. The other was foolish. They brought no extra oil. Here's his word of encouragement to us. Jesus provides ample reserves. He provides us with his Holy Spirit, not only to indwell us, but to fill us. He provides us with his word, which is to dwell richly inside of us. He provides us with his supper, that is the meal for our journey. Come and eat. He provides us with the support of his people, the church. Store them up. Fill that inner tank. Guard against that tank becoming depleted. Bring along a huge flask of oil. Be ready, watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Jesus, you tell stories, you tell parables.